Radio. Constitution on the Church, a talk by Sister Isabel Nauman at the 15th Annual Call to Holiness Conference. Thank you very much, Father Adrian. Good morning, everyone. Very happy to be with you that I was invited to come to you. As Father indicated, I, my topic this morning will be on the dogmatic constitution Lumen Gentium. Uh, I don't want to confront you this morning with all the difficulties of the document. It's all in my paper, but I don't want to do it. I want to show the beauty of the paper Lumen Gentium what it really means for us and the beauty that we have started to discover, but I think we have still a long way to go to discover that. We have tremendous popes who helped us to understand it, but I think there's still a lot that needs to be understood. I will try to stick to the text as much as I can so that I don't get lost in between. Uh, I would like to have a look, first of all, at uh, very briefly, at the conciliar vision of the Church, then the development of the Constitution, then focus on the mystery of the Church, on the fourfold aspect, then very briefly, because the topic will be taken up by someone else, I will mention um, Lumen Gentium and the lay faithful, and then chapter 8, the importance of the Marian chapter, and then come to a summary. So, if you are still with me in three quarters of an hour, we will hopefully have covered this. Thank you. First of all, to the conciliar vision of the Church. The intent of the Council was, in general, to take up the program of Vatican I, to further that, and then to balance it dogmatically, in particular with regard to the relationship between the Pope and the College of Bishops. There was also a need to address the participation of the lay faithful, the Church's inner social character, its relation with other Churches and the world. And Cardinal Simmons came up with a plan that he developed uh, on request of John Paul, uh, sorry, um, John the Twenty-Third, that he said we should look at the church at intra, what pertains to the church within, and at extra. That means the church's relationship to what is outside the church, what we call the world and society. Uh, why did the Holy Father call a council? Why did he want to address these issues? He wanted to do it because he said we are at the threshold of a new era. And that means the church needs to move into this, into this new era as well. Also, to lead the church so that the church could meet the needs and the challenges of this approaching era. At the same time, he says, so that the church can fulfill its mission and task in today's world, the church needs to safeguard the sacred heritage of Christian truth, to expound it with greater efficacy, and to do it in such a way that the entire human being is addressed. 
body, soul. And that it enables the faithful to journey towards their heavenly homeland. With this, the council had a marked pastoral orientation. Wanted to deepen the knowledge of our Christian heritage, of Christian doctrine, and to implement it in our lives. Nothing of shortcomings that we cut it nicely, that it fits us today. No, uh, John the Twenty-Third was very adamant about that. That the whole beauty of the heritage that we have within the Catholic Church should be passed on to other generations. And within that context, he also said we should open the windows so that and the doors so that we can see what is outside the church and what the church can contribute to our time and age to share with the people the riches of our Catholic heritage. As such, the church was not only the subject but also the object of the conciliar decree. Central to the decrees and the outcome of the council is definitely Lumen Gentium. And as already the first two words of the uh, encyclical say, Christ is addressed as the light of the world. The church should bring Christ to the world. Similar to what Father Joel said before, Christ is also at the center of this uh, constitution. The first session was started on December 1st, 1962. That was a session when the draft was discussed and over six days there was quite a vehement discussion in regard to the draft document. Number of bishops said it was too institutional, too juridical, and emphasized too much the visible societal structure of the church. And therefore, it should be more biblically, more patristically oriented, and also more pastorally oriented at the same time bringing out the importance between the unity between the Pope and the College of Bishops. Uh, to cut it short, it went through different drafts, different amendments were added to it so that the whole structure of the outline changed. We had different chapters, at some stage only four. We ended up then with eight chapters and it was then in its end result a much more dynamic document with references to the patristic, to the fathers of the church and with references to sacred scripture and of course uh, also a marked pastoral orientation. The document as such the whole schema was voted on and was voted in favor to it with one or the other voices, uh, with one or the other vote uh, not in favor of it. I don't want to go here into details, but it was then promulgated 
by Pope Paul VI on November 21st, 64. So we have actually two years in between, not counting the preparation that took place from the announcement of the Council. As I said earlier, at the center of the, the Constitution is the mystery of the Church. For the first time, we do not have a strict definition of what the Church is. The first chapter of the Constitution deals with the mystery of the Church. That is then followed by second chapter, the people of God, third chapter, the hierarchical constitution, with a particular emphasis on the office of bishops, chapter four, on the laity, chapter five, universal call to holiness of the church, chapter six, religious and their task, chapter seven, an eschatological chapter, and then chapter 8, the chapter on Mary. And I will say more to that in a moment. With its biblical, historical and communal dimension, this document looks at the church within the total plan of God's salvation. It is fundamentally Trinitarian coming from the Eternal Father, revealed in Christ, and unfolded through the Holy Spirit. The unfolding of this plan has as, as its center the so-called uh, Kairos, that is Christ coming into this world, the Incarnation and the Redemption. This Church, established by Christ, is already foreshadowed in the Old Testament in the covenanted people of Israel and established by Christ and this establishment and here we go back to the fathers of the church is seen in the symbolism of the blood and water that flowed out from the open side of Christ crucified. We have then at Pentecost the inauguration of the Church with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the document says the Church journeys towards its eschatological completion, that means till we have reached our heavenly homeland. So to speak, the cycle is full, coming from God and returning to God. Home to the Father is our journey, and that's the way of the Church. The communal dimension is so that all there is a unity between all who belong to the Church. They share in the divine life. They, they share in the sacrifice of the cross celebrated on the altar in the Holy Eucharist. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings about the unity within the body and it's also the Holy Spirit who leads the church into the truth. Charity and service are the marks of the church that is a community of faith, hope and love. It is uh, the instruction and the directions are of a hierarchical nature 
and that is entrusted to the hierarchy of the church to faithfully watch also over the charismatic gifts that are within the church and are there to enrich the church. Now I would um, like to mention a few images that pertain to the church. The first one is the mystical body of Christ. The mystical body of Christ is very much based on the Pauline literature which speaks of the organic unity between Christ and his members. It is a very complex reality comprising of a human and a divine element. The mystical body of Christ is not an airy-fairy body, but it has a hierarchically structured uh, appearance and has a spiritual as well as a visible side to it. So the church is both spiritual and visible. Through the sacramental reality, the life of Christ is communicated to the members of his body who by baptism confirm to Christ and to by participating in the body of the Lord through the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, share in communion with him and with each other. The important point is here, the unity is not generated from you to me. The unity comes from God, from Christ. And because we are united in Christ, we have a communion with one another. That's a very important aspect. It is God who establishes the community in, uh, amongst each other. This body of Christ has riches and is nourished by the gifts of ministry and by the charismatic gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit amongst the faithful. They are all made into the likeness of Christ and that is actually our way in the church from baptism on. Our whole journey in the church is to be formed into the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving principle that enables us to live this unity. The second image that I briefly like to touch on is that the church is also the bride of Christ. The bridal character of Christ, of the church in its close connection with the body of Christ is equivalent with membership in Christ. The parietal theme of the church runs through the Old Testament. We know if you read the Old Testament carefully, you have the references to God who is the bridegroom and who has chosen Israel as the bride. Jerusalem is called bride. The whole of Israel is called bride. And uh, in Jewish literature, if we look at the fulfillment of the covenant, it is celebrated as a marriage feast. If we go to the New Testament, when we look into John's Gospel, we have the wedding feast at Cana. An image, a symbol for this reality. 
we belong to Christ as members of the church. We are the pride of Christ who in her deepest inner core is inseparably united in love with the bridegroom, with Christ. And that too leads towards the final consummation when we look at the book of Revelation. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. So it's another image. It's not that, that the document gives one image. It uses images from all kinds of scenarios of life. I only, I only point out these major ones. But why does the church do it? Because the church says we are a mystery. The church is a mystery. We can't just say it fits in this little box now. It's a mystery and we can like a globe. You look at it from different sides. One is more in the foreground, then the other is more in the foreground. The third image that is used, and a whole chapter is dedicated to that, that is the people of God. The people of God, very much connected with the history of salvation. And with that, we have God's intention to unite men and women from all times, from all places, into a people that God establishes so that they can acknowledge God in truth and serve him in holiness. God's choice first comes to the people of Israel who become his covenanted people and we know the history failed ever so often. The one who is faithful is God. We only need to look in our own lives. It's God who is faithful and gives us always a new chance to come back to God. This people of God is also uh, spoken of in First Peter, in Peter's letter, that we are formed into a royal priesthood. There's a messianic people, a royal priesthood, all pertaining to the dignity that we all share by being created in the image and likeness of God and by being consecrated to God through baptism and the sacraments. Thus consecrated by the power of the Holy Spirit through baptism, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Within that is then very important also that we all share in the Eucharistic sacrifice. We share in the one priesthood of Christ, although the document makes a very clear distinction between um, the, and it speaks of an essential distinction between the ordained priesthood and the priesthood that we all share. But all of us are called to participate in the Eucharistic celebration and with that, you actually participate in that cosmic law of the liturgy. And what is that? To give glory to God and from God our sanctification. That whatever we do, whatever is part of us, it should be part of this giving glory to God. And God in turn gives us the sanctification. Therefore, the document also points out the significance of the universal call to holiness. All 
of us are called to holiness according to our circumstances, according to our stand in life. All the members of the people of God also share in the prophetic role of God and here in particular may be mentioned the sense of the faithful, the census fidelium, which speaks of the fact that, that in the Holy Spirit, the universal body of the faithful cannot be mistaken in belief. So the question here of majority and minority, the whole body of the faithful. This quality, so the document, is displayed through a supernatural sense of the faith in the whole people of God, then from the bishops to the last of the faithful laity, it expresses the consent of all in matters of faith and morals. And it's also the same Holy Spirit who distributes charismatic gifts amongst the faithful for the building up of the body of Christ, the people of God, and for renewal. But the judgment of these gifts, that is entrusted to the authority of the magisterium. That's, uh, I could speak quite a lot about that, the beauty of the magisterium, because people usually think, oh, the magisterium, isn't that? But the beauty of it, that it saves God's and judges wisely what is really part of our face. Anyhow, I can't go into it here. Uh, right. Uh, I would like to introduce still another image, and that is the family of God. Because in the document we have also references, references to, um, to the domestic family, and I think the family of God is something we can all relate to. Because it brings together very beautifully the body of Christ, the people of God, and the bride of Christ. That's all united in the image of the family of God, because when we think of a true family, there is a in, with, and for one another. And that is what should also mark the church with an effective co-responsibility from the lay faithful. Our, our founder actually said that each diocese should be a family of God, each local church should be a family of God with a pater familias, with the bishop as the father of the diocese. And this image of the church as family of God should be marked by a deep feeling with the church a true sentire cum ecclesia, a feeling with the church, and a family-like obedience to the church. Sorry, I can't go further into this, but uh, that is some of the beauty that flows from the fact that the church is a mystery and can be seen under different images. I might drop the chapter on uh, Lumigentium and the lay faithful, because that will be picked up later on. Let me just say still a word to the last chapter of Lumen Gentium, and that is the Marian chapter. Uh, it took quite a while to see that the Marian chapter, which was in part independent chapter, 
uh, independent document, and but that it in the end ended up as the last chapter of Lumen Gentium. And that is significant because in the first chapter, there we have an exposition what the mystery of the church is, how this mystery is unfolded in the people of God in a hierarchical framework and also in the lay faithful. And by pondering the mystery of the church in the first chapter, as it is presented there, we find that in the final chapter, all that was said before in a personalized manner in the figure of Mary and in her place at the side of Christ and within the church. She is called the type of the church. She is marked out as the person who is the helpmate of Christ in the entire uh, work of redemption and she is the one who best portrays to us the image of the church. She stands before us as the acting person and also as the acting ecclesial community whom she encourages to carry out the word that she has received and that she acted upon. Her motherhood in the church continues, her motherhood in the order of grace, which is a different one from the sacramental motherhood of the church, which is exercised through the ecclesial ministry, but in her motherhood in the order of grace, she is our companion, our mother, and that was also highlighted in that the Holy Father, Pope Paul VI, when he uh, promulgated Lumen Gentium on the 21st of November 64, at the same time he proclaimed Mary as mother of the church. Sort of to put another stamp on it, what is said in the document is here again that she indeed is the mother of the church. And people have sometimes problems with that. But I think here, if you take the image of the church as a family, a mother is always an integral part of a family. At the same time, she has a certain authority. And we can apply that in a similar way to Mary. So the Holy Father also wanted to entrust Mary to us as mother, as the mother of Christ, as the mother of us, who wants to lead us into a deeper understanding of what the church is into a deeper love for Christ, a deeper openness to the Holy Spirit, uh, towards the Father. And as such, she is not only our mother, but she is in the true sense a mother. That means she is also an educator. And to not to go over the time, I would like to finish off with a quote by Pope Benedict the 16th, but when he said that, it's taken from a talk that he gave in Hong Kong, and he was at that time still Cardinal Ratzinger. And I think it sums up beautifully what Lugentium stands for. I quote, Anyone who desires to understand the approach of the Council's ecclesiology cannot ignore chapters 4, to seven of the Constitution. 
that's the laity universal call to holiness, religious, eschatological nature, a character of the pilgrim church. So you cannot ignore those chapters. We speak of the laity, of the religious, and so on. In these chapters, the intrinsic purpose once again comes to the fore. That is, all that is most essential to her existence. It is a question of holiness, of conformity to God, that there be room in the world for God, that he dwell in it, and thus that the world become his kingdom. Holiness is something more than a moral quality. The movement towards holiness is identical with the eschatological movement and indeed, from the standpoint of Jesus' message, is now fundamental to the Church. The Church exists so that she may become God's dwelling place in the world and thus be holiness. It is this for which one should compete in the church, not for a given rank in rights of precedence or for occupying the first places. All this is taken up and formed into a synthesis in the last chapter of the Constitution that presents Mary the mother of the Lord. Unquote. Thank you. That was Sister Isabel Nauman on Constitution on the Church. This talk was from the Call to Holiness Conference on the Second Vatican Council. For more information, visit calltoholiness.com.au And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au